Well, before we look at our definition of truthfulness, we have to look at a different term that helps set this in context. The term is hypocrites. It's a Greek word. You might know the English word that is derived from this word, hypocrites. It's the word hypocrite. There is a term that is universally accepted as a derisive term, a pejorative term. It's the term hypocrite. Everybody recognizes that the hypocrite is is a very undesirable person. No one would voluntarily claim for himself the term hypocrite. The hypocrite is what describes the politician, the the uh, adulterer. The hypocrite is the one who is something on the outside that he is not on the inside. But the term didn't always have that strict negative connotation. Originally, the word was a combination of two terms, hupa and krites or krino, which means to judge from under or to opine from underneath. And so it came to be used to refer to play actors, those who performed on the stage in ancient Greek theater. They would always wear masks. It was the guise of the, the performer, the one who pretended. And it would provided entertainment, and entertainment was very much a part of the Greco-Roman world. They wore masks, and it was understood that the one speaking from under the mask was a different person than the one that he projected. His mask concealed his identity. But naturally, over time, with that kind of understanding in place, the word came to be used more metaphorically in that pejorative sense that we use it today. Our English word comes from this idea of play acting, the idea of being someone on the outside who is not what he is on the inside, someone who puts on a certain public persona, but in his real person, he is something much different. It's the one who wears the figurative mask today, the mask of hypocrisy, and it's ugly. And yet we must admit That truth be told, we are all, to one degree or another, hypocrites. To one degree or another, each one of us in this room puts on a persona that is not truly reflective of who we are on the inside. We know in the depths of our being that we still struggle with pernicious sins. Sins that we'd rather have nobody know about, and that's who we are as Those who might be redeemed and yet still unglorified, we still struggle against the flesh. We still struggle against the roots of that flesh within our daily practice. And we can put on these good masks, and yet we know, each one of us, that there's hypocrisy. But there's one who has no hypocrisy. There's one who wears no mask. There is only one who is absolute transparency, who displays that which he is in all authenticity, and that is our God. And so tonight when we talk about the the attributes or the perfection of truthfulness, we are really defining God as one who has no mask, one who is authentic 
one who is real, one who displays and exhibits externally to us who he truly is on the inside. There is no lack of consistency. There is absolute perfect authenticity. And that's what truthfulness really means. When we when we come to this attribute, this quality of truthfulness, and we ask ourselves the question, what does this really mean with respect to God? We, we come down to this basic idea. The truthfulness of God refers to his perfect authenticity. Everything in God and everything that he says, everything that he does, corresponds perfectly, absolutely, with what it means to be God. That's his truthfulness. In other words, God is perfectly what God should be. There is no inconsistency in his character. There's no inconsistency in his knowledge. There's no inconsistency in what he does. There's no inconsistency in what he says. One theologian, Louis Burkhoff, said it this way, the veracity or truthfulness of God is that perfection of his being by virtue of which he fully answers to the idea of the Godhead, is perfectly reliable in his revelation, and sees things as they really are. In other words, with God, his external expression to us is exactly who he is. It's completely consistent with who he is internally in himself. Now, of course, that raises a question. We talk about truthfulness. We have to go back to that question which Pilate asked and that question which Pilate could not answer and we can. It's the question, what is truth? Let's think of that for a moment. What is truth? If we answer that question, we answer it this way. Truth is that which corresponds to reality as determined by God. It's a very straightforward, simple, direct answer. What is truth? Someone asks you that question. Truth is that which corresponds to reality as God has determined it. So let's pull that apart and look at three essential components of this definition. First of all, we say that it corresponds. Truth is that which corresponds, which means it matches. There is no inconsistency. There is no mask on the truth. What is true is that which corresponds. It's in agreement with. It matches. It is equivalent. And what is it equivalent to? It is equivalent to reality. It corresponds to reality. And what is reality? Reality is the state of things as they actually exist. The state of things as they actually are. Not in terms of our own subjective uh, uh, projection or our own subjective experience, but reality is that which actually exists. But it is reality that is determined by God. It is God who determines what reality is. And he has determined reality because he has ultimate authority to do so. He has unrestricted sovereignty. He has perfect, absolute knowledge, and he is authentic. He wears no mask, and what he reveals is not masked. It is truthful. 
truth is that which corresponds to reality. Reality as determined by God. Now, using that definition and and operating upon that, we then can come back to the quality of truthfulness with respect to God and define him this way, that his truthfulness is that which corresponds to reality as God is in himself. We can take that a little bit further and see that truthfulness displayed for us in, in four categories. Let's look at four ways in which we define God is truthful. First of all, God is truthful with respect to his essence. We call this ontology, our understanding of being. God is true according to his being. He is true according to his essence. And what we mean by that, first and foremost, is that God exists and he is true in that existence. In fact, it is a cardinal uh, evidence of true faith, according to Hebrews 11 verse 16, that for those who believe, believe in, in coming to God, believe that he exists. That's what this truthfulness is. Truthfulness in existence. In other words, God isn't a myth. God isn't something that has just been created as an opium. God exists. He is true according to his own existence. And when we speak of God's truthfulness, we also say he is true in comparison to all else that is claimed to be God, that is false. You can look at all those texts in Isaiah that over and over again emphasize that he is the one true God and there is no other. Or we can look at a text like Jesus' high priestly prayer and in John 17 verse 3, Jesus says this, this is eternal life that they may know you and he's praying to the Father and he says that they may know you, the only true God. When you talk about the truthfulness of God, that he exists, truthfulness in his essence, we are affirming that he is the only true God. There is no competitor. There is no equal. He is the only true God. We also talk about God's truthfulness with respect to his knowledge. Not only his existence, that he is real, he is true, He's the one true God, but we also speak of God's truthfulness with respect to his knowledge. We can call this epistemology or the study of knowing. He is true in his knowledge, and he is true in this sense. He is true in what he knows about himself. He knows what it means to be deity. He knows what it means to be absolute perfection. He knows himself. And you can look at Isaiah 40, verses 13 to 14, where we read these words. Who has directed the spirit of Yahweh, or as his counselor has informed him, with whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? God is true in his knowledge of himself. There is no error. There is no mistake. There is no inadequacy. There is no need for growth. He knows himself truly in perfection. But also God is true with respect to his knowledge of his creation. His knowledge of everything that isn't God. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, There is no creature, no created thing that is hidden from his sight, but 
all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows everything perfectly. His knowledge of creation, his knowledge of the tiniest molecules or the biggest aspects of that creation is perfect. There is no error. There is no mistake. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, God doesn't understand me. That is blasphemous. He understands you perfectly. He understands you better than you ever will. He knows you, and what his knowledge is, is true. God is true according to his knowledge. A third category we can affirm when we, when we describe or discuss the perfection of truthfulness is that God is true according to his communication. So he's true in his being, he's true in his knowledge of his knowing, and he's also true in his communication, in how he reveals himself. This is revelation. And so he's true in this sense according to what he reveals in his words. There are those times in history when he has spoken, when he has made statements, when he has given his word. And God is true. When we affirm the truthfulness of God, we affirm that everything that God says is true. He cannot lie. Titus 1 verse 2 describes God as the God who cannot lie. Hebrews 6, the same thing. God cannot lie. When God speaks, when he reveals himself in language, in propositional statements, when he describes himself and who he is, there is never any error. Not even the slightest tinge. He cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. But God is also true in all that he reveals according to his works. So when God works, when God creates, he leaves his fingerprints. And those fingerprints reveal who he is. Romans chapter 1. God has made it clear to man through what he has made. The testimony of the stars, the testimony of the created world, the skies and the seas and the land and everything that fills them, the testimony that comes from our own body is true related to what God reveals through that. There is no error in that. Now you're going to come back and say, well, some people think there is. I'll get to that in a moment. But God, as he has revealed himself in general revelation through his creation and through his redemptive works, is always true. It is not misleading. It is not something that takes a person in a hide-and-go-seek game down a, a dark alley. It is true. Psalm 111, verses 7 and 8 says this, The works of God's hands are truth. The works of God's hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed. His works are performed in truth, the psalmist says. It also relates to those words. It relates to his demands. That's the fourth category. God's truthfulness, when we affirm that, we are affirming that what he expects, what his will is for us, is true. God is true according to his demands. That's the realm of ethics. 
What God has revealed about his will for us is true. And that means that they will, there will never be something that God expects of us that is false or that misses the mark or that is harmful or in some way obfuscating and misleading. Never. God is true according to what he requires of his creatures. Psalm 119 verses, uh, verse 151 says this. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. What God commands, what he lays down as the picture of godliness, when God's image bearers are able to reflect his glory, the, the commands that are part of that, there is never any deceit involved in that. So, for example, when he commands purity, sexual purity, there is never any mistaken notion in that. When he commands that you honor your marriage vows, despite all the hardship that you may face, there is never any impurity in that. He knows what is right, he gives what is true, and his expectations of you are true. They're never misleading. And not only that, but God is true in this sense, in this ethical sense, as to how he then judges. How he judges his creatures for their failure to live up to his commands, that too is true. Revelation 16 verse 7 says, I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, and the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And that word for judgments emphasizes God's pronouncements of discipline or his pronouncement of verdicts on the lives of others. God is true in how he judges, what he concludes to the matter, what he concludes about your life. Whatever fate he has planned for you is true. It cannot be false. One writer, Tim Challies, summarizes it well when he says this, truth is what God thinks. It is what God does. It is what God is. It is what God has revealed of himself in the Bible. Truth is found in its fullest form in God, for he is truth. He is the very source and origin of all truth. He is truth. Now, again, as I said before, someone will respond and say, well, not everybody recognizes that, so where's the problem? And so we answer the question, what God's truth does not mean. And God's truthfulness does not mean that he will be received as truthful by sinful man. That God is truth does not mean that he will be received as such by sinful man. All sinners have that very vivid sense of the reality of God. Romans 1 is very clear on that. There is a sense of the divine in every image bearer. There is the recognition, the presupposition that God exists. Everyone has it. All sinners, in fact, are theologians. All sinners will have some ideas about who God is. Why is There's so much discussion about things like agnosticism then and and atheism. Well, the problem is this. Sinners are both corrupted 
and they corrupt. Sinners, particularly in their minds, are corrupted. They are darkened. The effects of Adam's sin on their minds has left them debased in their thinking. They are corrupted. And not only that, but they actively corrupt evidence. They actively corrupt the witness. They actively corrupt that which God has spoken, that which God has done, which testifies to his existence, to his truthfulness, to his judgments. We see this, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Notice the two problems of the unbeliever. The natural man, the unbeliever, the one who has not experienced supernatural regeneration as a gift of God, the one left to himself, Paul says it very clearly, he has a moral bias. The sinner is biased against the truth. He's biased, therefore, against God. And because he's biased against God, he's biased against anything that is of God that is, of course, truth. But not only is he morally biased, not only does he not accept the things of God for their foolishness to him, but notice the second half of that verse, 1 Corinthians 2.14, says that the unbeliever, the natural man, cannot understand He is rationally unable in his sinful state to look at the truth, to receive the truth, to appreciate the truth, and to acknowledge it as truth. He is rationally unable because of his sinfulness. Why? Paul says, because the things of the Spirit of God are spiritually appraised. They are appraised by those who are alive spiritually, those who are regenerated. We can also look at that other text I've already referred to, first, or excuse me, Romans chapter 1, the first chapter of Romans, verses 18 to 21. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now notice what these men do, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because Why is the wrath of God revealed? Well, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God has made it evident to them. He's put no mask on it. In the real state of affairs, in this world, looking at the creation, the stars above, the ground beneath us, everything that fills heaven and earth, God has made it clear. It is objectively true. And yet, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now notice this, for even though they knew God, they recognized him, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. We call this the noetic effects of sin. One of the most evident ways that we see the effect of the fall, Adam's sin on the human race, is what it does to the mind. That's where it all begins. The noetic effect of sin, 
Noetic means affecting the mind. Noetic is mind. The noetic effects of sin renders the mind not only incapable of understanding truly, but it renders the mind, sin renders the mind active in its suppression and distortion of that which is true. So you can look at it this way. We've looked at this graph before. Perhaps you recognize this from our last series on the Christian mind. But if you think of the noetic effects of sin, you could picture it this way. It's not that the unbeliever can never announce something or articulate something that's true. We could put it this way in a simple analogy. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. And a broken human being can articulate that which is true. He just can't give an account for it. He doesn't give God the glory for it. But he can, he can state things that are true. However, we must understand it this way. That those true things, the closer they get to God, the more they will be distorted and suppressed. So you can understand it this way. If you put it on a graph, on the one hand, the, the vertical line is the intensity of the, the effects of sin on the mind. That's the vertical line. And then you have this horizontal line is, is what we could call the proximity of an, an aspect of knowledge to the one true God. And so it moves horizontally. Now notice this, that if we're just dealing with something that is somewhat far away from direct statements about the character of God, something like, let's say, the lifespan of fruit flies, unbelievers can do a pretty good job of counting. They can count 24-hour periods, and we're not going to say that they necessarily going to suppress anything related to the lifespan of fruit flies. But then you go a little bit further and you begin to ask them about the state of a preborn baby. And now, because you're getting closer to God, because that baby is an image bearer, now the, the human mind, affected by Adam's sin, now the suppression and distortion of the truth kicks into high gear. And that mind will go to all kinds of length to explain that that life is not true life. And they will invest all kinds of effort to distort the truth and sound academic and scientific in the process. They know, though. They know. And then, of course, when you talk about the life of the triune God, the response to that in the mind of the unbeliever, that is then where his mind kicks into highest gear in the effort to distort and suppress that truth about God in his own life, in his own mind, in his own thinking. That is the noetic effects of sin. So when we talk about the truthfulness of God, we must understand this. God is truthful not according to how man assesses the case, not according to how humanity describes God and his revelation and his works. No, God is true according to how he has defined himself in his being, in his knowledge, in his revelation, and in his expectations. Now, where does that testimony come from? Let's look at the biblical testimony to this understanding of God's truthfulness. Now, before we get into those four categories and look at evidence under each one, Let's look for a little bit at just a couple of terms. In the Old Testament, there is a key term uh, that is the, the term emet, and it is the term that describes truth in the Hebrew language for the most part. What's interesting about this term, 
emet, as it relates to truth, is that it also has the added connotation of trustworthiness or faithfulness, showing that for the Hebrew language, and especially in our Old Testament, that when we see the term truth, it doesn't just refer to knowledge, but there is truth that is is connected here to morality. So to describe God in the Old Testament as true, it has that built-in notion, not simply of factual truthfulness, but of moral trustworthiness. To say that God is true is to say that he's real and trustworthy. That's the idea. In fact, when we look at that term, truthful, emmet, we find when it is used to describe God that it often occurs with a twin term, we call it. It's the term chesed, meaning loving kindness or covenant loyalty. It has this idea that that truthfulness and loyalty, loving loyalty, are really two sides of the same coin. That when you affirm one of God, you're really affirming the other. And when you affirm the other, you're affirming the former. They're intertwined and really difficult to separate. That's the concept of truthfulness that we get from the Old Testament with respect to these terms. Now, in the New Testament, the term is aletheia and the Greek of the New Testament, but what we also find here with that term is that in the New Testament, that term aletheia is also regularly enough found together with the term agape, love, that these two terms find themselves hand in hand, they're intertwined. Let's look at that first with respect to the Old Testament, the concept of loving kindness and truthfulness as a witness to the character of God. Just a quickly, a quick summary of some key texts here. Exodus chapter 34 verse 6 says this, then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and the Lord himself proclaimed. He preached to Moses these words, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed and emmet. Abounding in covenant loyalty and truthfulness. Look at Psalm 25 verse 10. All the paths of Yahweh are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenants and his testimonies. Psalm 89 verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Psalm 115, verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Why? Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Truth and covenant loyalty go hand in hand. Psalm 117, verse 2, for his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord, or Psalm 138, verse 2, I will bow down toward your holy temple and I will give thanks to your name. Why? For your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. In the New Testament, like I said, you find that term aletheia and agape, truth and love, also fitting together perfectly. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, what do we find? Love rejoices in or with the truth. 
We can look at Ephesians 4.15. We are to speak truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. 1 Peter 1.22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from, a, from, a, from the heart. Notice again that these two concepts, truth and love, love and truth, go hand in hand. 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. 2 John verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. 3 John 1, the elder to the beloved guys whom I love in truth. Those New Testament writers, those texts, over and over again, emphasize that same reality in the Old Testament. Loving kindness and covenant loyalty go hand in hand, or loving kindness and truthfulness go hand in hand. They're twins, inseparable. But stepping away from just the terms, let's look back at those four categories. The first one we said is this, God is true according to his essence. Where do we find evidence of this? Deuteronomy 4.35. To you... Moses writes to the second generation of Israelites, to you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh, he is God, there is none other besides him. Notice again the emphasis on reality. God is true because he's real and there is no other. Jeremiah 10.10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. And the everlasting king, at his wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Of course, we have that statement of Jesus in, in the upper room, John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Notice again, he's emphasizing his essence. It is who he is, truth. Or 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. For they themselves, Paul writes, report about us what kind of a reception we had with you Thessalonians and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, the real God. He is true. And all of that leads to this conclusion. It's the fool, the stupid one. The mindless one who says, there is no God. Psalm 14, verse 1. And again, just because there are many fools out there, does nothing to tarnish the truthfulness of God's reputation. It does nothing to to diminish the purity of his truthful witness. Paul deals with this in Romans 3, 3 to 4. When he answers this kind of reasoning, he says this, What then, if some did not believe? If some remained in their foolishness? Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. And that term, again, emphasizes truthfulness. It will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. 
That statement really summarizes the case. There is just one who is true, it is God. And every single man, because of Adam, is a liar. God is true according to his essence. God is true according to his knowledge. That second category, Psalm 147, verses 4 to 5, say this, God counts the number of stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is the Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we studied the omniscience of God. He knows everything absolutely. He does not learn. He knows innately. He knows instantly. He knows absolutely. He knows perfectly. And he knows the number of stars. That's God's truthfulness in his knowledge. We read this text from Isaiah 40 already, verses 13 and 14, that no one is God's teacher. No one tells God something he does not know from eternity to eternity. He has always known it without fluctuation. God is true in his knowledge. In Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from him. Everything about every creature, God knows truly. There's no mask. There's no hiddenness. There's, some, there's nothing that God doesn't know exactly he needs to learn or perhaps he never will know that is not at all the one true god he knows wayne grudem puts it this way to say that god knows all things and that his knowledge is perfect is to say that he is never mistaken in his perception or understanding of the world all that he knows and thinks is true and is a correct understanding of the nature of reality And that extends to you, your life, your circumstances, your thoughts. And we all know very well that we are masters of deceit. We can deceive others, pull on the mask, and we can even pull on the mask to ourselves. So often we deceive ourselves as to the state of things. As to the reality of our own hearts, we deceive ourselves. We live in that deceit. It's in our ideas. It's in our thinking. But God knows the truth. God's knowledge is true, but he is also true according to his communication. Let's look at some texts here. David, in 2 Samuel 7, after receiving that promise of the covenant that there would be one from his line who would sit upon the throne. David makes this statement, Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Psalm 12, verse 6, The words of the Lord are pure words. Now notice it's in the plural. You could perhaps make the argument that if he said the word of the Lord, that he's just talking about the general concept, but it's in the plural. And the emphasis is, is that the words of the Lord refer to all those tiniest words, the jots and the tittles, everything that God has stated, everything that belongs to the writings, the scriptures. Those words are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Psalm 119, verse 160, the psalmist in that great chapter, the longest chapter of the Bible, devoted to the truthfulness of God's word, the psalmist says this, the sum of your word. So not only the particulars, 
the very sum of the word is truth, and every one of God's righteous ordinances is everlasting. Again, going back to Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says this, sanctify them in the truth, set them apart in the truth. He, He knows and prays, realizing that those disciples and everyone who would come after them would be set apart only in one context, the truth. And then he says this, your word, your revelation is truth. Revelation 15, verse 3, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways. How God interacts with his creation, how God interacts with you, how God interacts in your most specific of circumstances, you can say this, it is always true. There is never deceit, never any notion of error involved. In fact, we put this in the reverse, what we find is numerous statements in the scriptures that make it absolutely clear that God can have nothing to do with error. For example, Numbers 23 verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and he will not make it good? God is not like us. God is so far different. And one of the primary ways we know this is that he cannot lie. All of us know we do it all the time. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. He is not a man that he should change his mind. 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Titus chapter 1 verses 1 to 2, Paul begins his letter to Titus to those, to, 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 as Titus ministered on the island of Crete. And you read a little bit later in that letter that the problem with the Cretans were that they were evil beasts, liars, and gluttons. And so as Paul writes to Titus, who's dealing with this kind of culture, Paul writes this, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus, for the sake or for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is in accordance with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. Whatever God has said in his word can never lie. Whatever he has described, whatever he has commanded to you, in this word, will never miss the mark. It will never need revision or alteration or editing. It is true. We also see in the fourth category that God is true in his demands. Nehemiah 9 verse 13 Then you came down on Mount Sinai, describing the giving of the Mosaic Law. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Psalm 19 verse 9b, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Psalm 51 verse 4, in his in his. In his psalm of of repentance, David says this, Against you, you only, 
I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David is essentially saying this, whatever comes my way in terms of a consequence for my sin, I can never resist it. I can never refuse it. I can never condemn it. I can never judge it because God will only send the kind of discipline that is true. Some of you men might be in that situation right now. You're facing the consequences for your sin. And you might even be saying, well, I repented. I don't understand why I still live with these consequences. Why is God doing this to me? You need to change your question. Instead, make it a statement. God is righteous. He is true. He is blameless in his judgments. And whatever is coming upon your life right now, whatever is coming as discipline, whatever is coming as, as that trial in life, you have, to, you have to look at it and, and always repeat these words of Psalm 51 verse 4. You are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. There is no errant discipline that comes from the hand of the Lord. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we embrace that, the better our lives will be. The more we resist that, the more we grumble and complain and ask why, the harder our life will become. Revelation 16, verse 7. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. When we talk about God being true according to his demands, it means that what God has laid out for a plan for us, for humanity and for us in particular as his children, is never errant. God is true with what he respects or expects of us. All his laws in our life, as we look at them and see the path that he has for us, all those laws correspond to justice and equity, righteousness. His laws are never arbitrary. His instruction is never illogical. His his discipline is never haphazard. So you talk with that young guy who's not married and struggling with sexual immorality, the temptation. Why does God have it that way? It's so easy just to go do it. Why is it wrong? And the answer is this. God is never errant in his laws. The obedience of that is what is true. There is a purpose. It conforms to his character. Or that man who is severely dissatisfied with his wife, and he looks at those marriage vows, and he goes, I don't want to be married to her. It was a mistake. She doesn't satisfy me. Why we got married, I don't know. I just wanted to get married in order to have sex, and now I realize it wasn't the right one for me, so I need to get out of it. And you come across that statement that says, what God has joined together, let no man render asunder. And the man says, well, I don't really need that. God doesn't understand our day to day. He doesn't understand the pressures. He doesn't understand my life, how hard it is to live with this woman. The answer is God truly understands. And he's given you that law because he does. What God has joined together, let no man Render asunder. Live with it. Live with it. Learn how to live with it by God's grace. Or when God says it should be the the man who takes on responsibility in the home and carries the greatest burden and makes the greatest sacrifices. And in our day, that's looked upon with scorn. Male leadership 
The idea of, of the male, the, the man being the leader, that's scorned. God's judgments are righteous. They're true. Or that a marriage should be between a man and a woman, and that is the only biblical definition of marriage. And all the efforts today to redefine that and say, well, when God said that, he simply didn't understand our day and how we could redeem homosexuality. No, God's judgments are true. Francis Schaeffer said this, moral absolutes rest upon God's character. The moral commands he has given to men are an expression of his character. Men, as created in his image, are to live by choice on the basis of what God is. The standards of morality are determined by what conforms to his character, while those things which do not conform are immoral. Now, as we close, we have to consider what God's truthfulness demands from us. How do we respond Let me go through these quickly. First of all, truth cannot be known apart from God. Truth cannot be known truly apart from God. We've looked at this a little already. The very concept of truth can only be accounted for when viewed in relation to the one true God. You can talk about a a, a quest for truth, that you're seeking the truth, but if it does not have the one true God as a goal, it is completely futile. So when your coworkers or friends say they're on a quest for truth, don't just pat them on the back and wish them well. Warn them that unless it has God as the target, it will not have any good ending. Truth only makes sense and can be understood truly when viewed in his light. Psalm 36 verse 9, For with you is the fountain of light, and in your light we see light. Apart from his light, we will not see the light. And more than that, all quests for him, all quests for God that do not proceed through Jesus Christ will fail. And that's what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want to get to the Father? You want to get to the one true God? It comes through me, Jesus said. John Owen put it this way, without absolutes revealed from without... By God himself, we are left rudderless in a sea of conflicting ideas about matters, justice, and right and wrong, issuing from a multitude of self-opinionated thinkers. Number two, sin is rebellion against the truth. We have to understand it that way, especially in terms of God's ethical truthfulness, that God is true as it relates to his demands of us, his will for his creation, that sin takes a particular aim at God's truthfulness. It is really at the heart of all our sin. At the root of any sin is always a rejection of the truth. You go back to Genesis 3. What happens when the serpent interacts with Eve? What does he do? He zeroes in on the veracity of what God had said. He says, you shall not surely die. That was an attack on the truthful demands and expectations of God to Adam and Eve. Satan aimed right at that. And in today's context as well, every sin issues forth from our own personal attack on God's truth. 
Daniel recognized this in Daniel 9, his great prayer of repentance. He says, verse 37, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Of course, we read that in Romans Verses 1 and verse 25, the suppression of truth. That's where sin comes from. Hebrews 3 verse 13 calls the, he calls sin here deceitful. Encourage one another day after day so that none of you will be hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. That's what sin is. After all, the father of all sin is called the father of lies. We won't read it now, but John 8, verses 44 to 47, Jesus puts it very clearly in saying that the devil is the father of lies, and this is from where sin issues. And so a key question to ask in your battle with temptation as you take hold of the grace of God, of the revelation of God, is always to ask yourself this question. When you're in the moment of the battle, what is the truth? You fail to ask that question and you're ill-prepared for that enemy of your soul who brings in that attack and appeals to your flesh. But you have to ask the question, what is the truth? What is the truth? Number three, only God's truth can set you free. Only God's truth can set you free. Now, This verse, John 8, verse 32, is used by myriads of people today to justify all kinds of lifestyles and views and perspectives. Jesus did say, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Well, Satan is a good manipulator of Scripture. He can twist it out of its context, and that is indeed what has happened. If we read the previous verse, it says this, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Here's the issue. The freedom that is promised here is not the freedom of self-determination. It's not the freedom of self-governance. It's not the freedom of self-gratification. The freedom that Jesus talks about here is found in submission to Christ. It's found in being a follower of Christ. The truth sets you free to be what you are meant to be. Not only that, but this freedom is, is not found in what so many claim today. This freedom is not found in pop psychology. This freedom is not found in science or some new form of religion or philosophy. It's not found by By looking into yourself, it's found in the word of Christ. Notice the comparison there, and you will know the truth. And that word, the truth, is synonymous with my word, according to Christ. Only God's truth can set you free. And if you're here tonight and you need freedom... You're here tonight and you know enslavement to sin. You know it perfectly. You know the father of lies. You live in a world of lies. And you want freedom? Well, it's here. It's in Christ. It's in the gospel that he offers. And when he says, come and follow me. Number four, God's word must be accepted as true. What God's Word describes, its narratives, 
It's descriptions of God himself. It's descriptions of us. What God's word describes. It's description of salvation. It's description of consequences. It's, it's description of future judgment. What God's word describes must be accepted without skepticism or judgment. It is not ours to stand above that word and to say, hmm, I'm going to determine whether it's truthful. No, because God has said it, he stands as the highest court. It is our response to accept it without reservation. And whether that word speaks of origins or whether that word speaks of the future, we must accept it without reservation if we believe that God is a God of truth. Moreover, we must accept what it commands. We must accept what it commands without exception. We must realize that this is our good That all those things that God has said, do this and that. And while that is not our salvation, men, our salvation is not based on anything we do. But when we think of the Christian life, when we think of walking the path of holiness, following Christ, being conformed to his image, and we read these different things about prayer and about about letting the word of Christ dwell within us richly and admonishing one another and, and this about married life and this about single life, That all those things must be accepted without exception as coming from a true God. What happens when we don't? David Farnell says it this way, the importance of inerrancy, accepting truthfulness, veracity of these things. The importance of inerrancy generates from the very perfections of the character of God himself who cannot lie. To say that his word errs or is imperfect is to blaspheme God who is the author of his word. Number five, we must speak the truth. As those who have been regenerated, who are no longer natural men, but have the ability to spiritually appraise because we've been made alive by the sovereign grace of God through nothing on our own, through no merit that we have accumulated. He has done it to us for his own glory and for our eternal good. For those who are in that category, we realize that we must speak the truth. Why? Because now we have that opportunity to reflect him. We have been made new so that we can function as the reflection, once again, of his glory. And truthfulness is a communicable attribute. As God's image bearers, we have been created to imitate him, particularly in his truthfulness. You see that in the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment. Not to bear false witness. You see it in Proverbs. Lying lips, chapter 12, verse 22 says, are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. You see it in the New Testament, prescribed to God's people, the church, speaking the truth in love. Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Men, do not go back to that old way. Do not lie. And this includes, of course, the keeping of promises. We could look at Matthew 33, verses 37. We won't, but there Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. You make a promise. You say you're going to do something. You make a commitment. You honor that commitment. This includes also confronting sin. This means that where we see sin, we don't shrink back. It means that we don't just cover it up. It means that we don't just, just say, well, I want to be at peace, and so I won't deal with it. 
1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. And this means we speak truth against error, especially when it deals with our Lord. Again, Francis Schaeffer said this, Here is the great evangelical disaster, the failure of the evangelical world to stand for truth is truth. There's only one word for this, accommodation. The evangelical church is accommodated to the world spirit of the age. Truth carries with it confrontation. Truth demands confrontation, loving confrontation, but confrontation nevertheless. If our reflex action is always accommodation, regardless of the centrality of the truth involved, there's something wrong. Finally, God is worthy of worship because he's truthful. Merely because of his truthfulness, it should create a response in us of adoration. And you saw that already in some of the Psalms that I wrote, that the reflection and meditation upon the truthfulness of God is what was fueled to their fire of adoration. They loved God because he is truthful. Psalm 115 verse 1 says it this way, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory. Why? Because of your loving kindness and your truth. Let me close with this verse. Psalm 117 verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him, all peoples. For his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. Let's do that right now. Heavenly Father, we, we acknowledge the truthfulness of those words of Scripture that says, Let God be true and every man a liar. That in, the, in the, the full disclosure of things, there is only one who has no mask, and it's you. And we are plagued by lying tongues and deceitful spirits. We're plagued by that constant tendency to obscure, to deceive put on the mask. And Father, at the end of it, we are so thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ. That it is not that you require absolute truthfulness of us in order to be saved, because if that was true, no one would be. But you in your truthfulness have said that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And those who were formerly liars and deceivers, are now part of that wonderful chorus who laud you, who praise you for the truthfulness of your gospel. But Father, we, we do not want to leave it there. We want this awareness of your truthfulness to impassion us to, to greater praise and adoration for who you are, especially as we take stock of our own lives. Father, please, we ask that you would elevate yourself in our understanding as to this very perfection. And then do your work through that so that we might reflect, even in the smallest yet growing ways, your truthfulness in our lives. Help us, Father, we pray, to be increasingly truthful to each other, truthful to our wives, to our children, to our parents, to each other here, 
We ask this so that we might come to share in the joy of the truth. It is in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.